Harvard Divinity School. God is Red, 50th Anniversary Symposium. The impact of God is Red on studies of religion, land, and the environment. October 7th, 2022. Hello, everyone. Uh, Greetings. Um, I just want to take a moment to um, acknowledge that we are meeting and gathering here upon the traditional land of the Massachusetts. Um, and to honor their their um, heritage, their continued presence, um, and pray for their flourishing. My name is Kimberly Patton. I am a historian of religion. I focus on uh, religions of the ancient Mediterranean, but I also teach in comparative religion. And um, it's been a joy to see um, this wonderful conference um, that Anne and colleagues have um, have uh, lifted up and allowed us to gather to discuss these burning and important questions uh, in the history of our our country, um, especially at this particular time. Um, The title of our session today is The Impact of God is Red on Studies of Religion, Land, and the Environment. And this is already, we've heard a thread and a theme that has really Uh, suffused um, much of our work together, um, many of the conversations. Um, Part of that um, is uh, the the powerful, uh, is due in in part to the powerful critique that Vine Deloria Jr. offers in in the book um, when he um, considers the powerful differences between Christianity and tribal religions. Uh, He diagnoses, when we consider that the Genesis account places nature and non-human life systems in a polarity with us, tinged with evil and without hope of redemption, except at the last judgment, the whole idea appears intolerable. And in uh, in response to that, an an antidote to that, he speaks um, eloquently, not only in chapter 5, entitled The Problem of Creation, uh, but throughout, um, God is read. Um, of uh, uh, just to n- name one dimension, he lifts up the kinship between animals, reptiles, birds, and human beings, other living things, which, as he says eloquently, are not regarded as insensitive species. Rather, they are people, in the same man- manner as the various tribes of human beings are people. Um, he cites young chief Akayus, who refused to sign the Treaty of Walla Walla because he felt citing Deloria, the rest of creation was not represented in the transaction. And Young Chief said, I wonder if the ground has anything to say. I wonder if the ground is listening to what is said. I wonder if the ground would come alive and what is on it. Um, I am honored today to introduce our uh, speaker and our respondent, Um, Our speaker is Professor Susan Hill. She is a citizen of the Mohawk Nation, a member of the Wolf Clan, and lives with her family at Six Nations of the Grand River. She's an associate professor of the University of Toronto, holding a joint appointment with the Department of History and the Center for Indigenous Studies, where she's also the current director. Uh, And prior to that, she taught at um, Western University and at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Professor Hill's research interests include Haudenosaunee history, indigenous research methodologies and ethics, and indigenous territoriality with themes that benefit indigenous communities while expanding academic understandings of indigenous thought and philosophy. She's particularly interested in Haudenosaunee knowledge and thought, seeking to make sense of contemporary lives through an examination of how people got to where they are now 
both literally and figuratively. And her 2017 book, The Clay We Are Made Of, Haudenosaunee Land Tenure on the Grand River, was published by the University of Manitoba Press. Uh, it addresses these themes, and it won a number of awards, including Best First Book, and Native, in the, uh, awarded by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, as well as the Aboriginal History Group Prize in the Canadian Historical, in the, in the Canadian Historical Association. Um, so we're just delighted and honored to have you uh, here to, um, to offer this reflection um, today, Professor Hill. Um, responding um, is uh, Dr. Uh, Zoe Todd, um, who is Red River Metis. She's a practice-led artist researcher who studies the relationships between indigenous, indigenous sovereignty and freshwater fish futures in Canada. As a Metis anthropologist and researcher artist, Dr. Todd combines dynamic social science and humanities research and research creation approaches, including ethnography, archival research, oral testimony, and experimental artistic research practices within a framework of indigenous philosophy to elucidate new ways to study and to support the complex relationships between indigenous sovereignty and freshwater fish well-being in Canada today. They are a co-founder of the Institute for Freshwater Fish Futures, which is a collaborative indigenous-led initiative that is restoring fish futures together across three continents. They're also a co-founder of the Indigenous Environmental Knowledge Institute at Carleton University. Um, Dr. Todd was a 2018 Yale Presidential Visiting Fellow, and in 2020, they were elected to the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars. Uh, currently, Dr. Todd is Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University. And we're delighted to have um, both Professors Hill and Professor Todd uh, joining us today in our um, important discussion on religion, land, and the environment, and the impact of this still productive um, and still powerfully consequential God is Red. Thank you so much, Professor Hill. <clears throat> I'm really honored to have this opportunity to, to share the stage today um, and to have the chance to talk with so many amazing thinkers. Um, it's been a while. I think lots of us have been pretty isolated. <laughs> um, and we get to have conversations, but only through Zoom. Um, I'm grateful, though, for the Zoom because we are still able to, to have people join us who can't physically be with us. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, I appreciate the really kind introduction. Um, I do wanna say that when I greeted you, um, and the language I was using was the Cuga language, and I am a Mohawk, but um, my community of Grand River is the only place left in the world where the Cuga language is spoken. So um, <clears throat> I am not a good language learner, um, but I continue to try. So uh, I, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to learn. Um, and my daughter is in Cuga Immersion School. So I'm, I'm hopeful that our future generations will be able to perpetuate that language. Um, COVID's been hard in regards to, uh, to Cuga in particular. We lost 20% of our first language speakers um, in like a month and a half, actually. That was, uh, it was just before, the, or just as the vaccines were rolling out. So, <clears throat> yes, so it's, it's been tough, but um, 
we have our directions. And last night for folks who were here, I asked for marching orders um, because that's what we always get, right? And uh, it was really great to get some of those marching orders from Suzanne um, to be reminded of those things, right? And it's all those things that we've inherited. Um, <clears throat> and whoever the current old people are, they have that right and that responsibility, right, to direct. So um, I still have a while before I'm there, but although I, I fully admit I do give lots of marching orders to, <laughs> to others. Um, <clears throat> and in our jobs in the academy, we, we get that privilege as well, right? So um, yeah, I wanted to, to give that background. Um, I actually did a title for my remarks um, that I called The Timelessness of Vine Delora Jr. Through the Lens of God is Red. Um, I will tell you that uh, God is Red is not my favorite Vine Deloria Jr. text, <laughs> um, partly because I don't understand all of the religion conversation, particularly the Christian conversation. Um, I was raised as a Christian in idea, but not in function, and certainly not in like the philosophy of it. Um, <clears throat> I think most people who grew up in the States and Canada are certainly raised in a sort of Christian, where it's a, they're Christian states, right? Regardless of how uh, active one's family might be. You know, we go to school Monday to Friday. We don't go to school on Sundays, and we all know why. <laughs> you know, the winter holiday is Christmas. You know, we get Good Friday and Easter off. Um, yeah, that's not, uh, we live in Christian states, regardless of what those states might want to tell you about their secularism. Um, <clears throat> but because of my lack of knowledge of, of biblical philosophy, I've always struggled with the text. Um, to be honest, though, I make my grad students read it. <laughs> um, because to me, what, one of the greatest things it offers us is that questioning and that, um, that push to think more. And my own academic training has come from people who had that idea that it was their job to encourage particularly graduate students, but undergrads as well, to become thinkers. Not to tell you what to think, but to teach you how to think um, and to push you um, to do that thinking. And even the how, right, isn't necessarily, there's no standard for that, but it's that encouragement to think. Um, <clears throat> so yes, with that, there's a, that's sort of my own tensions with the text um, as a layout. Now, I'll also tell you I am not a scholar of religion, which I think you've already figured out. Um, and I'm not technically a scholar of land or environment either. Um, but I deal with those topics extensively as an Indigenous Studies scholar. Um, because honestly, I don't believe you can be an effective Indigenous Studies scholar without taking up those topics in some form. We all have our own particular specialties within that sort of broader category, but you've got to know something about all of them. Um, in particular, you have to know something about all of them in terms of how they affect indigenous peoples, past, present, and future, um, if you're going to be good at what you do. I'll also tell you that as a Haudenosaunee woman, these topics are part of my everyday life, whether I call it that or not. Um, and they're part of my responsibilities to the future generations. And while I've done very well in my, my career, um, let's face it, at the end of, of my days, it's not gonna be about what I did at whatever university I worked at. It's gonna be about particularly 
what my kids are able to do because of what, of, of how I enacted my responsibilities. So uh, with that, I wanted to start with some general ideas about God is Red as an Indigenous Studies text and about Indigenous Studies in general. Um, so obviously, it's, in my mind, a critical text of Indigenous Studies, both in the United States and Canada. I'm not so sure what it has to say about Indigenous Studies in Australia yet. I'm sure there's some good stuff, though, because they're still dealing with the, the settler state realities, but it's going to be a bit different. But it gives us the tools to critique those fields of religion, land, and environment, um, both from inside and outside traditional academic realms, including those studies. It's important, however, that we don't lose sight of Vine Deloria Jr.'s primary goal, improving the lives of Native people. This should also be the goal of Indigenous studies today and in the future. Because again, in the end, it doesn't matter what we do, how many awards we might win, how many prizes we might have, even how many grants we might get. Mm -hmm. In the end, if we haven't benefited the people, it doesn't matter. So it also gives us the tools to better understand important aspects of contemporary Native existence. And it helps to illuminate past towards a healthier future for our nations. Um, my own intellectual genealogy connecting to Vine um, particularly came through the folks who were involved with the Native American Studies program in the American Studies Department at the University at Buffalo. And I did my master's there in the early 90s. Um, and I was talking to someone earlier about the fact that it was still probably pretty radical in comparison to other similar departments, but it wasn't as radical as it had once been. Um, I got to hear stories about uh, how folks used to go into Attica and work with Native inmates in Attica. Um, and, you know, like, as a 22-year-old sitting there thinking, oh, um, that it was definitely not something on my radar, that it was, it was definitely not something I was ready to do. Um, but hearing how they had done it, it wasn't really that long before that, right, that they had been doing that. Um, and then later finding out that actually some of the folks who were fellow students were former inmates. And so understanding the value, right, of, of prison programs that different institutions have run, um, and then also, of course, those institutional relationships, right, and thinking about, in that particular context, the relationship to the state of New York, um, and how it's often a much finer line than we think in terms of the institutions of higher learning and penal institutions, for example, particularly when it comes to Native people, right? Um, and actually thinking back um, particularly to stories that John Mohawk used to tell in our classes um, that often started with, so we're, there was this one time we were in, and it might have been Pine Ridge, it might have been Onondaga, but it always was, we were surrounded by the cops. And then he'd laugh. Um, and then he'd go on to tell us the story, right? But that's sort of that importance of stories, but also that importance of... Um, grounding things, understanding what it meant to be an engaged scholar and, and to be um, integrated in the issues of the day. Now, that didn't mean that the only good work you could do were if you were someplace and surrounded by cops, but it talked about understanding what was happening in our communities and playing a role in trying to um, make sure those matters didn't get out of hand to the extent where life was lost. Um, 
And he always had humor about it, which always kind of <laughs> would blow us away a bit, but it also helped, right? Because that's also how we are in our communities is, is having that use of humor as a tool to, um, to deal with the heaviness of, of issues that arise. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that happened while I was a master's student is Vine actually sent some of his master's graduates to come do their PhDs at the University of Buffalo. Um, and so I got introduced a bit more to his scholarship through the uh, sort of just sharing of information from Edward Valandra and Ronnie Francisco, um, who had done their masters out at Boulder. Um, and Vine had sent them for a reason to Buffalo. Uh, Ronnie never finished her PhD, but she reconnected with a lot of uh, folks. She was from Akwazesne, so that was really great, and she and I continue to be friends. And Ed um, went on to be one of the, the small number of Native American PhD graduates of that program. Um, and from time to time, I still hear from him. Uh, the last I knew he was in Winnipeg. So um, he still continues to get around, but um, also had just really great questions that he would ask his fellow students about, particularly things about um, environmental history. Um, he brought in his chemistry background, which we didn't encounter a lot of chemistry graduates um, in our American studies classes, I can tell you that. But, but also that idea of how do you take the knowledge that you've learned wherever it is and make it relevant um, and useful. And that was a really important lesson to me. And then um, recently, I got to participate in the 50th anniversary of Native American studies at the University at Buffalo. And having that chance to reconnect and hear those stories was, was really valuable. Um, and I can tell you that while God is Red didn't come up, Vine Deloria Jr.'s name came up a lot in those conversations. Um, slipping back just a moment to, to John Mohawk as well, he used to lead this, the, the capstone seminar in American studies for the PhD program. And you read at least a book a week Usually it was three books a week, but people got to pick. Everybody read one book, and then everybody read from a list of like 20 other books to then come in and talk about. Um, and I remember watching John, and at the time I was just like, okay, you just do what you're told, right? But he actually choreographed the whole thing. And he would like encourage you to pick the books that he wanted to make sure you knew about um, in that process. And, and to me, that's very akin to the thinking that I've seen um, in Vine Deloria's work in terms of, what do you think about this? What do you know about this? And they might seem like wildly unrelated, but reading them together, you learn how they weren't unrelated. Or you might even know there must be a relationship, but then to actually have that opportunity to sit with them at the same time. And to me, God is Right actually is a really good example of that. Um, in one book, he pulls together all of these different ideas, right? And like makes you think about things that just seem really weird together, but actually work your mind in a way that, that causes it to move in ways that I, I think many other similar texts wouldn't. Right. Um, and so to me, that's, again, something that's super valuable there. Um, one of the key messages, and I think really it's, it's the key messages of his scholarship in general, was that call to accountability for academics and the academy, and particularly around areas of research ethics, institutional ethics, 
and ultimately everyone's responsibility to the natural world. Um, I'm not gonna give tons of examples because I think you all know them, um, but those reminders, and to me those are also the ongoing marching orders that academics have today, is about how do we continue to mobilize um, these calls to action in ways that will continue to make our institutions better places and more effective places. And in the cases of places like tribal colleges, how it is that we actually help them to grow in ways that they can be um, more effective, in ways that where they're going to be seen as at par and often in many cases exceeding the accomplishments of, um, of mainstream institutions. Um, obviously, the text is about a critique of Christianity. And for me, that um, as a student of history or historical studies, it always um, came up in my own research into Haudenosaunee history where there's questions raised about the, du the duplicitous actions of missionaries, right? And it's sort of that dichotomy of being a historian of the early colonial period and the fact that the vast majority of those records are written by missionaries. Um, but then also being able to sort through and find meaning in those um, without carrying that continuous burden of the message, um, and as well as the labels that get attached in that. So for example, if anyone's spent any quality time with the Jesuit relations, you already know what I mean, um, but being able to actually find useful things in there um, outside of you know, the, the demonic and, and devil terms that, that land in there. Um, and I had the opportunity to visit London, England last summer, and I was constantly thinking about the messages that were carried forward by these, um, these four leaders, they call them the four kings of the new world, who went to see Queen Anne in 1710. And um, their requests were for uh, really ways for the queen to get her people in line so that we would have less problems with the settlers who were in um, our territories, particularly around the, along the Mohawk River. So three of the, the four were Mohawk leaders. The fourth was um, a Lenape uh, leader. And so they were all there though saying, can you get your people in line? And so they were explaining to the, the queen that you have people who've come here and they brought alcohol with them and our people drink that and it causes great trouble in our communities. And then they said, you need to get your people online around deals they're making about our land because they're getting some of our individual people to sign agreements that um, are different from what they're telling us they are. So what we really need from you is a school teacher who can teach some of our young people how to read and write so that we're not being taken for granted and taken advantage of in these land deals that are happening. Um, and he, they were specifically talking about these patents from the 16, 1693 in the Mohawk Valley, the Gahidosara patents. Um, and so it's, I, it's actually to me our first land claim. Um, we're still waiting on that actually, but, um, <laughs> right? So, and then uh, another thing they were asking about was about witchcraft that the settlers had brought with them um, because 
some of our people were starting to learn some of those things and it was causing a lot of harm in our communities. So what the leaders were saying is please get your people in line. And I know that that's a real tension, right? When we think about the way that um, witchcraft has been labeled in, in the early history of America, right? Salem's just up the road. Um, but what they're really saying is we want your people to stop in encouraging our people to do things that are gonna cause disharmony amongst us. So Queen Anne's response was not to send a teacher and not to like send uh, directions to the local government to keep your people in line about land patents. She said, I'm gonna send you a church because I'll send you a church and I'll send you a minister to run that church because when your people go to church, the, the, the minister is also going to be the teacher, so they can teach your kids how to read and write, and everything will be okay. Um, and so that was the original Mohawk Chapel that was built in 1711 uh, in Fort, Fort Scoharde. Um, after the American Revolution, because it got burned during the war, it's rebuilt on the Grand River in the Mohawk Village, um, and it still stands today. But understanding sort of that legacy, but also understanding what our people were asking for and what the monarch decided we really needed. Um, which, you know, because it's been in the news, because, you know, we have a, a new monarch in power over there. Um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if Charles maybe gets to a point where he can hear what his ancestor didn't. I'm not too hopeful about that, to be honest. Uh, but understanding that legacy and understanding sort of those questions that our people were asking um, over 300 years ago, right? And the fact that those tensions still exist. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack about particularly the history of our relationship with Western religions um, through the settler states, right? Um, yeah, I won't go into tons more about that, but that did bring me, oddly enough, to a story. I guess John's training uh, taught me more than I think sometimes. Uh, I had the opportunity to visit with Pamela Clausen yesterday, and we were talking a bit about um, Wounded Knee and the various stories that we hear about the different folks who came in to help negotiate around um, the dispersal of folks from the Wounded Knee Encampment. And of course, going to the University of Buffalo, I got to hear a lot of stories about uh, the Haudenosaunee delegation that was part of that, that peace, those peace talks, right? Um, but what even there in Buffalo we didn't hear about as much was a story I'd heard a few years prior from a former graduate of the program at UB, um, who's a, a very skilled Seneca linguist, um, Phyllis Eileen Bardot-Williams. We invited her to come speak at the University of Michigan one time, and people were asking her about um, what kinds of community activities she did as a master's student at the University at Buffalo in the 1970s. And she says, well, you know, we didn't really call them community activities because we just were the community, so. <laughs> um, but she told us about this time in 1973 when there was a little article that appeared in the Buffalo News that talked about that there had been an agreement reached that the women and children at Wounded Knee were going to leave um, for their safety. And 
it was Eileen and several other young Seneca moms who were students in the program at the time who read that and they were like, no, because if the women and kids leave, that there'll be nothing to stop the police from coming in and killing everyone. So they figured out whose station wagon they were going to take and who had provisions, and they set out that night. They let their, their men know, you've got the kids, we'll be back when we can be, but we've got to go. Uh, and they did. And she told stories about learning, um, like Dennis Banks used to do like these little training talks with the folks who were there. Because of course, people came from all over the place, right? So uh, with varying levels of survival skills. So you know, he was trying to teach them about hand-to-hand -hand combat with a fork. Um, and then she tells a story about somebody who brought, uh, who went and harvested a cow from a local farm. Mm. Um, but they picked an old cow. And so Dennis and some of the others had to like teach the young guys, okay, this is what you look for if you're gonna go harvest. Um, and, and some of those skills, right? And it's funny because those are the stories we don't hear about as much. They're not the ones that made it into the published accounts, um, but I'm sure there's tons of them, um, which also made me think about the fact that a text like God is Read gives us opportunity to encourage our students to go find some of those stories. Um, and particularly thinking about what story, what kinds of stories didn't make it in the publications. And I think in many regards, often it's the stories of women um, who you know, took up the call, or actually, it, they, nobody was calling for them to come help. They just read that the women and kids were leaving, so they're like, oh no. So they made that call themselves, right? And, and often those are the stories that we don't hear. And so to me, those are really great opportunities for students to take that up, and particularly to go take it up in terms of asking their own family members, right? Like years later, I found out that friends of mine who I used to stay with um, when it was time for ceremony at home, when I was living in Buffalo, had also gone to Pine Ridge in the 70s to help, right? And they were like teenagers from Tuscarora who like just took a motorcycle out to Wounded Knee, right? And again, those aren't the things that were published about. Um, and so those opportunities to get those stories and, you know, it's a little scary because the teenagers of the 1970s are now like the, the grand, great, in some cases, great grandparents, right? And because it, it feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it's, and particularly, let's face it, in Native life, it was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> our life expectancy is not that long in many cases. So yes, anyway, I digress, but I think it's important to think about those stories that aren't documented, but also how things like God is Red encourage us to go look for those stories too. Um, obviously, God is Red is about a critique of American society. And I always tell my students those critiques continue to be relevant and valid. And I also try to remind them that those critiques, while he's really talking heavily about America, he's talking about settler states. Um, and so many of those critiques are completely matched on the Canadian side of the border. Um, I will say that, that that's an area that I wish uh, Vine had the opportunity to explore more extensively. I understand why he focused so heavily on the American state, because that was his target audience. Um, but again, there's real opportunities to encourage students to try to uncover those stories 
um, you know, Richard Oakes was from Makwazasne. So he lived a very different life than lots of folks um, who aren't from border communities, right? Um, Leonard Peltier, I don't think he's a member in Wakwamakong, but he's eligible for membership in Wakwamakong, for example. Um, and so understanding how did policy and reactions from north of the border play out in activism south of the border and vice versa, right? Like um, lots of folks on this side of the border don't know about the, enc the encampment at Anishinaabe Park in Kenora in uh, 1970. That's in response to the white paper. And it really the white paper, even though it was really, really bad, did help to inspire a level of activism that hadn't been seen. But it also was informed by earlier forms of activism that just weren't understood to be in that same way, right? Like people who had been pushing land claims, pushing treaty rights, and all those things that then sort of boil up in response to, in that case, the white paper, but also obviously very much in response to the civil rights movement. Um, and really, I think there's a lot of work to be done in unpacking the relationships across the border um, around that kind of activism. I'm gonna jump ahead because I know I'm talking a lot. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, when I reread God is Red this summer, um, one of the things that just kept coming to mind was this quote that I've heard a lot in my life. Um, and actually, it, it was related um, by Norbert Hill Jr., where he used to talk about um, the importance of abstinence from alcohol in ACES. Um, he was the executive director of ACES when I was a young person and used to love going to their conferences. And he used to talk about um, when white men came, we had the land, they had the bottle, and then once we took up the bottle, then they ended up with the land. But of course, that's, that's derived from um, a statement that was made in Africa, mm -hmm. probably in the 1950s, definitely taken up heavily by Desmond Tutu mm -hmm. um, in the 70s about, you know, we had the land and you had the Bible, now we have the Bible and you have the land. Um, but thinking about sort of how religion has been used as a tool of dispossession. Um, and then thinking about then how does that, um, what does that encourage us to do about our thoughts about land? Um, and not like so, lots of people take that as like a very direct message and we have to get rid of Christianity. Uh, but really it's a message about what's your relationship to the land? And regardless of what philosophies might interest you or intrigue you or might even inform um, how you want to live or raise your kids, what do those older philosophies tell you about how it is that you ought to be as Native people? Um, and so that's the thing that just kept coming to mind over and over as I was, was rereading the text. Um, and of course, as well, those questions about how do we deal with the role of Christianity within Indigenous communities? And to me, that's one of the key challenges of indigenous studies, even though it's not comfortable mm, sometimes mm -hmm. to have those conversations. Um, sometimes it's, it's particularly tricky. I think probably, I'm gonna say, say it's trickier now than I think it was 50 years ago in a lot of places because people are so 
they want to be nice to each other. And I get that. And we could definitely do to have a bit more niceness amongst us in our communities sometimes. But yeah, how do we deal with that tension that is so inherent? Um, and I know that some nations are a lot more effective at that than others. Um, I will definitely tell you what I'm seeing amongst um, my friends who are involved in, in some of the land back activities, for example, in my community and related communities, is that just huge disavowal of Christianity without really that thought about how we navigate that in our relationship with our families. But then also, um, you know, there are some who are very heavily involved, particularly with 1492 Landback Lane, which is an action uh, taken in my territory, who come from these like longtime Christian families. Um, you know, we've had a number of churches burned, for example, in our community. Um, and, and the tensions that's created, and you may have seen some of the press about churches that have been burned, particularly in, uh, in Alberta, some really old churches. Much of it is in response to residential school information that's come forward. Mm. Um, but yeah, thinking through how do we navigate this, but then also thinking through what levels of Christian thought and philosophy permeate us even if we don't consider ourselves to be Christian. And, and thinking through all those levels. Uh, and I know I'm, for lack of a better analogy, preaching to the choir here. But again, to me, that's, that's an opportunity that we have um, to encourage those around us to take up these questions. Um, I believe that one of the, the most um, amazing things I've seen in Native Studies in my almost 30 years since I was an undergrad um, is that the shift towards language learning that I've seen that when I was you know, starting my master's in 1993, language did not seem like it was something that um, was even really an option to me and definitely to my peers. Like I don't think any of us saw that reclaiming of language as something that we'd be able to do, certainly not something we'd be able to do as academics. Um, today, it's kind of a given, um, at least in a lot, of, uh, a lot of Native Studies programs. Or at the very least, there's lots of acceptance and movement to try to support students who want to do that. Um, it's sometimes a bit slower at places like here and even at the University of Toronto, um, particularly in some of the graduate programs, right, because there's still those... Um, ideas about indigenous languages as not being, um, uh, that, that they're not gonna be able to be something you can be critical within, um, shall we say. I think that's been the pushback I've heard. Um, yeah, and so how is it that uh, within indigenous studies scholarship, we can actually move that, that needle? Um, and in lots of places, it's not even a question anymore, but there's still lots of places where there's help that's needed in that. And to me, that's one of those pieces that, well, Vine doesn't talk about that so much specifically, but he has a lot to say about it in between the lines, right? Because he's talking about that importance of getting at indigenous thought and indigenous philosophy. And I mean, he's calling it indigenous, um, religion or like he's using lots of different, I don't think he uses religion specifically, but you know, he's encouraging it to be like indigenous ceremonial thought. Um, that's language. 
Because in the end, yeah, there's places who will, you know, there's people who will put through ceremonies using English, but generally the, the understanding is that it needs to be done in the original language um, and that ideally it's not just going to be ritualized in the sense that, you know, there's a few people who understand what's being said, but there's that encouragement that everyone who participates needs to work at increasing their own understanding of those languages in order to be full participants. That witnessing is not the same as actually participating. Um, and so while he's not you know, calling for immersion programs in the text, he gives us the basis that actually then allows us to push for immersion programs, to push for um, the validity of indigenous languages in academic intellectual discussion. Um, and that, to me, is a key responsibility going forward for Indigenous Studies scholars in particular, is making sure that those, um, that there's space and a recognition of Indigenous languages as relevant, not, and not just in traditional uh, Indigenous Studies fields. It needs to actually be brought into chemistry. It needs to be brought into physics, um, you know, and that's also going to challenge the, the language experts too, right? Because most of them haven't thought about physics in the way that Western physics thinks about physics, right? Um, if you have an interest in that, I really encourage you to talk to or like seek out um, some of the teachings from Leroy Little Bear about that because he will blow your mind. Um, and I believe he's a Harvard grad, right? Didn't Leroy come here? I think he worked here maybe. Um, and then also like, yeah, Leroy can talk to you about quantum physics, but he also was one of the crafters in the 1982 Constitution in Canada, right? The, the Section 35. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of one of those things, too. Like, I really enjoyed hearing some of the stories last night about things that Vine wrote that people didn't know Vine wrote, maybe. Um, there's a lot of folks, right, who did that. Well, not a lot, but there's several folks who wrote all kinds of things that didn't necessarily have their name on it. Um, but that actually continue to impact, in most cases, for the benefit of, of Native peoples today, right? Um, within that, too, I, I see a certain level of humility. And, and uh, Suzanne was telling us that last night as well, right? That, like, it didn't matter if your name was on it. it what mattered is that the message got out there and that people did something with it. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that in the academy, and particularly in places like Harvard or the University of Toronto, because um, sometimes, you know, promotion and tenure depend on it. We get caught up in making sure we get our credit. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But in the end, is the credit any good if it actually doesn't stand for something, right? right. Um, so, yeah, I know I'm rambling here. but um, And speaking of, of Leroy, um, when thinking about Vine's messages about um, the importance of being rooted in place, mm -hmm. And of course, in Indigenous studies, there's a, a strong push for Indigenous studies to be rooted in place rather than being universal, per se. Um, we see that as well in some of the, the theories that came forward around like ecological contexts, um, forwarded by folks like Sagage Henderson and Leroy Little Bear, as, as really kind of base tenants. And I am going to wrap it up because I am over time. Um, so, what I would encourage folks to think about in terms of the, the ongoing timelessness of Vine Deloria Jr. through God is Red um, is the importance, obviously, of 
taking responsibility for protecting indigenous peoples and places, um, of pushing back against those challenges, and particularly those challenges that come as a result of settler colonialism in the form of capitalism. But also, and again, he doesn't say this specifically, but to me, he, he tells us that we also need to hold ourselves accountable. And so thinking about um, how it is that we respectfully deal with questioning ourselves and those whom we love and who are around us about the ways in which we have become um, complacent in terms of allowing particularly capitalism um, to grow at the, uh, the disregard of indigenous peoples and places. Um, so I'm gonna stop there. Nyawa. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Hill. That was really thought-provoking and rich. And um, delighted to turn the floor over for our response today to Professor Zoe Todd, whom I've already introduced. Hi, Professor Todd. It's great to see you. Hi, thank you. Tanse, Zoe Nitsigasun, Nia Orepemsu Squeo, Egomagas, Nanaas, Sunema, Kualaka, Miwigan, Genanas Gomi Dinawal, Marcy Kakel, Niwako Makinak. And I just want to express deep gratitude to Susan. That was such an incredible um, just presentation of your experience and the ways that Vine's work has shaped you. Uh, and I, I hope that I can um, provide comments that match the, <laughs> the, the brilliance that you just shared. Um, and also, I just really appreciate how you underscored how Native and Indigenous studies over time has refused the ways that the border state um, violates us. Um, so I guess I just want to sort of build on that idea of the marching orders that Suzanne gave us yesterday and that you have you have given us as well. Uh, and just to really think about how do we how do we do exactly what you said, respectfully deal with questioning ourselves and ensure that capitalism isn't allowed to flourish at the expense of indigenous peoples and places. And, and I honestly, I trained in biology and anthropology. And so I didn't come to Vine's work until very late. <laughs> I was trained by white settler scholars. Uh, and it was really in my PhD where I was becoming really frustrated with how white anthropologists in Europe were talking about indigenous issues in my PhD program. And it was, I have to credit Alex King, who was an American linguistic anthropologist. And he said, ah, oh, none of the stuff people are saying here, uh, like it, uh, that's not what Vine Gloria had to say. <laughs> and, and he really underscored for me, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to spend your time or even waste your time uh, trying to make yourself make sense to these European scholars. Um, and so in reading God is Read to prepare for this, uh, it really, for me, I kept thinking about uh, the resonances between Vine's work and, and Franz Fanon's work and uh, a quote that kind of stood out for me that I, that I uh, pulled from Fanon last night when I was preparing my remarks uh, at the end of, of uh, Wretched of the Earth, Fanon tells us, if we want to respond to the expectations of, of the Europeans, we must not send them back a reflection, however ideal of their society and their thought that periodically sickens even them. 
end quote. And it just really, for me, God is Red really is one of those examples of refusing to reflect back to Europeans what they want to see, but to actually deeply provincialize European structures and say, here's an example of how things are done differently within Native or Indigenous uh, perspectives here in North America, uh, and just provide us that space to really understand the, the vibrance and um, brilliance of Indigenous peoples and nations and societies through time and to really bring us back to that understanding of, of caring and and being in place and and really understanding our responsibilities to it and i think also what really stands out for me is how how under acknowledged vine's work is in shaping contemporary environmental discourses in the sciences where I work. Um, you know, scientists are not generally uh, reading Vine or critical indigenous studies more broadly. Uh, they have a particular genealogy that they follow and it's often very anthropological. And so, you know, I see scientists today saying that they're working to integrate or reconcile Western science to indigenous worlds. I think about comments that Vine makes throughout this text, but also his other texts. Um, and, and there's a really brilliant PhD student in anthropology at Cornell named Bruno Serafin, who works with um, Karak uh, fire knowledge keepers. Uh, and he's, he describes what's happening in the sciences in the US and Canada right now as a TEK rush or a tech rush, a rush towards non-Indigenous peoples trying to um, sometimes instrumentalize Indigenous knowledge uh, and apply it towards, uh, you know, contemporary problems without understanding that deep rootedness of knowledge in place and the responsibilities that different nations have in place. Uh, and in reading through God is Red, uh, one section really jumped out at me because uh, Vine takes the time to cite uh, a renowned uh, Stony Nakoda leader and elder, uh, Walking Buffalo, uh, and, and, a, and an excerpt from his book, um, his 1973 text. Uh, and in that section, Walking Buffalo is talking about trees talking and how uh, different elements of the world talk. And he, you know, he kind of concludes by saying, the problem is white people don't listen. <laughs> And I just find it, it was, it was just really, I found it so ironic because the people who have been credited with discovering that trees talk to one another through mycorrhizal networks and other things are in fact white scientists. <laughs> and so here, you know, 50 years ago, two very renowned indigenous thinkers were, were clearly telling, uh, you know, settler US and Canadian people, you know, uh, you know, you don't listen. <laughs> And, and imagine the amount of time they would have saved if they were just actually reading critical Indigenous texts at that time. Um, and so that also underscores a line that, uh, that Vine wrote in Red Earth, White Lies, where he said, quote, the bottom line about information possessed by non-Western peoples is that the information becomes valid only when offered by a white scholar recognized by the academic establishment. In effect, the color of the skin guarantees scientific objectivity. And I think what's so powerful, you know, uh, Dr. Hill, you are one of the people that has helped to build critical Indigenous studies in Canada into this amazing discipline that so many of us are lucky to work within and teach within. And, and I just really love how this event has been pulled together because it, it really is an opportunity to remember all of those genealogies, both literal and, and you know, um, you know, ideological <laughs> that draw Indigenous studies together as the community that it is, and um, just how powerful it is to be reminded that it grew out of, it grew out of 
you know, marching orders at that time, and that people had really specific, tangible, material responsibilities to relatives, to place, to other communities. Um, and just, it's so exciting to get to be part of this discipline today, uh, but also to get to see uh, scholars of every generation sharing their relationships and and remembrances and and visions for the future together in this space all at once. So I don't want to take up too much time um, because I, I really hope that um, you know there will be amazing questions for Dr. Hill. Uh, but I just wanted to under sort of like overstate maybe <laughs> uh, just how how amazing it is to get to revisit texts like God is Red and just remember what indigenous scholars across the US, Canada and elsewhere have come up against in building the discipline into what it is today and ensuring that subsequent generations have that space to think critically, to learn how to think like Dr. Hill uh, described, uh, and also to remember that really tangible material set of responsibilities we have uh, not to become complacent within institutions. My own institution, you know, sort of proudly proclaims that it's indigenizing, but they quietly sort of finally admitted that they're holding on to 300 acres of unceded and unsurrendered Algonquin lands. And they said, it's okay, it's okay, we're gonna put some temporary seasonal um, sweat lodges on those lands. And, you know, I understand that, you know, that might be one step towards uh, a reconciliation of sorts, but I think that in reading texts like God is Red, it reminds us, uh, as Suzanne said yesterday, like, why would we start with half the loaf when we can have the whole loaf? And I hope that there's a way for uh, our discipline to continue to push institutions not to do performative sort of forms of reconciliation and restitution, but to actually commit themselves. And, and one of my dear friends and colleagues reminds me that her job, she works within a very uh, well-funded well elite university. And she said her responsibility is to continue to liberate the ill-gotten funds of the institution. Uh, and I, I tried, that's a marching order I took very seriously and enthusiastically <laughs> when she shared it with me casually one day. And so I think everyone who's spoken today really uh, demonstrates that commitment to that kind of material return and that material justice and also that careful solidarity work across indigenous nations but also across various displaced and dispossessed communities around the globe and really thinking about what does it mean to turn our backs on universal european religion universal white supremacist and european um ways of doing things and instead think about all the multiplicity of ways that people have lived respectfully in place and storied our lives and, and tended to one another and to place. And so I'm just immensely grateful for this opportunity to, to, to listen uh, to everyone uh, who's been speaking at, at this symposium, because it's, it's truly just such an amazing uh, gathering of brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Again, uh, heartfelt thanks um, both to Professor uh, Hill and Professor Todd for your wonderful and stimulating remarks. And I want to open the floor now um, both to our community here um, to uh, offer responses and questions and comments and also to those who are listening um, online. And uh, I'll let uh, those monitoring in the back, I think Anka will be monitoring and letting me know if anyone has any questions.
And um, I also want to ask, when you do ask your question, could you just identify yourself, um, just so that our names are known to each other? Thank you. Yes, uh, Dan Wildcat. Susan, thank you so much for that marvelous presentation and, and your point about elders and all those stories. And um, have you made this, or is your program made this issue of uh, the real urgency of collecting oral histories at this point in time? Uh, this is something we talk a lot about at Haskell. Uh, of course, we serve nations from all over the United States and some of you know, your relatives. And uh, uh, this is something that I think is, is very much on people's minds right now because we're losing in many cases. You know, we just lost, I just lost both my maternal aunts who were our last um, paternal aunts who were my mother, the last mother tongue speakers of the Yuchi language. Now we have some young people that are working really hard to, you know, restore the language, bring it back to life. But I think of the stories they had, and I know my cousins have some stories, but it seems like there's some urgency to that now. And that'd be a great contribution because there are all of these stories about things that they witnessed, that they saw in their lifetime that, uh, are very different, I think, than maybe the histories you might get out of, you know, a kind of a documentarian history. Right, so um, to be honest with you, at the University of Toronto, um, we don't have tons of students who are community-based or like community-tied, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. they've got connections, but most of them probably aren't tightly tied to their communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so, there's certainly folks who are training any students they can, both those who are like have ties to a community um, who are indigenous as well as non-indigenous students to work on creating healthy relationships. Of course, you can't just show up with a tape recorder, right? You have to actually build that community. Right. Um, and there's a growing number of folks at the University of Toronto who are getting to that place where they can then help students to get to those places. Um, but because of the urgency, a number of um, folks, both at the University in Toronto and other institutions where there are other Haudenosaunee scholars in particular, we're trying hard to support institutions that actually are more capable of doing that, partly because they already have relationships built. And particularly, there's a group of us um, who work at uh, mostly nearby institutions who try to support Six Nations Polytechnic um, because that's an institution based in our community at Grand River with ties to other Haudenosaunee communities um, that it's been around for 30 years, um, but also like people who helped create it were from the community, right? So there's there's that trust there that, and you, I know you see that a lot, obviously at Haskell, but in other tribal institutions, right? And so we're working at how we can support Polytech to be more effective in that work. And not just Polytech, there's also First Nations Technical Institute, which is based out of Tyendinaga, um, trying to help give them support because they like infrastructure in most cases, right? Um, you know, so it means, writing the shirt grant and trying to use that as leverage. It's tricky though, right? Because in the end we chase, it's like, you know, the, the tail's wagging the dog, right? Um, which you know well, but the dog finally caught the tail um, with your NSF project, right? But yeah, that doesn't just happen overnight. Um, so yeah, like 
so currently I'm working with a, a colleague who's in Pamela's department um, who comes from Makwazasne on trying to track some shirk money down to help infuse efforts that are already happening, um, particularly at Polytech around oral histories. Um, we're lucky in that we do have some organizations that have existed in the community under the guise of other programs who've collected some of that, um, particularly like uh, the Woodland Cultural Center with their language department. So since the, the Mohawk Institute Residential School shut down in 1969, I think officially in 1970, um, in 1972, they, they're resurrected as a cultural center, and they started working on cultural things in 1972. So they have like this wealth of language material that they've collected um, in the last 50 years and trying to support their efforts. Um, interestingly enough, like literally they worked for decades just to get enough money to run programs and to try to keep their buildings from being condemned when the Kamloops grave discovery was announced last year, they now like don't have enough time to collect the money that people are trying to give them. Um, you know, so it's a different kind of um, sort of challenge that they're facing. But then also in terms of trying to, to identify folks who have the skill and talent to do that kind of work, right? So that it's not, even though, you know, you might be asking your grandma these stories, and she's okay with you having the tape recorder, you still need some training, right? Um, and so those kinds of things. And, and working with the people who are situated to do that, but giving them the supports they need to be able to do that work. So uh, yeah, we're trying, but there's a lot of work to do there. Um, but yes, I, I appreciate that question. And to me, that's one of those key things that, um, and that we also then need to try to support our related communities in doing that as well. Thank you so much. Anka from online community, or was yeah. it your own? Yes, Anne Browdy is joining us online, who has worked so tirelessly to um, prepare this conference, so she's going to ask a question. Hi, I, uh, I just Welcome wanted to- Welcome to your own conference, Anne. We miss you. <laughs> well, I, I just really wanted to greet everybody to uh, let you know I'm still alive and um, taking in every rich um, gem that is coming out of this conversation and enjoying it so much. This is really a dream come true to sit in my rocking chair and listen to these incredible conversations. Um, I wanna ask a question that harkens back to the last panel a bit about indigenous studies. Um, uh, and, but I'd love to hear the, the, these panelists respond to it also. And it's a question about how Deloria's call to think about religion spatially might affect both our pedagogical choices and our uh, decisions about the spaces in which we teach, learn, and study, and the spaces of the university. And I, I you know, I'm acutely aware of our privilege here at Harvard, and we just renovated this gorgeous building that um, I wish I was sitting in with you now. Um, the room you're sitting in, the James room, was designed to connect intellectual activity to the natural world. And I would love to, uh, you know, I don't know if it's working or not, if that was a good idea or uh, how, 
how that might have an impact, but I also wanted to um, call attention to um, the presence outside the James room of uh, a, um, a ceramic artwork earthbound that was created for this new building and that uh, uh, Anthony Trujillo has helped me to understand is actually bringing the earth inside the building and inside into the pedagogical space. And um, uh, well, I would just love to hear you talk about, uh, Zoe, I know that you work in um, alternative media and to hear your thinking about whether recourse to non-literary media like pottery um, to have it in our presence, that these things may not have some of the, the um, deeply embedded colonial genealogies that the printed texts have that are our, our go-to sources in academics. And I, I'd just love to hear you think about this question. Thank you so much, Anne. And that was the question for um, Dr. Todd, for Zoe? Either one. Uh, Susan, you can go first if you okay. want. Yeah, uh, all right, yeah. I'll just, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do wherever I've been working, what, whatever university, is asking the university about sourcing. Because um, to me, that's, you know, yeah, this room is gorgeous and I enjoyed getting to watch the turkeys last night who were outside hanging out while, that was really cool. Uh, so I would say yes, it, it's done a good job of, of at least letting you have a good view of what's happening outside and kind of in the real world, so to speak, um, as real as Cambridge probably gets, because yeah, I, you know. Um, it reminds me a lot of Ann Arbor, which I love dearly, but yeah, it's not the real world, right? Um, but yes. But to me, and, and again, this is like one of those things that I think we have real power within the institution, or at least we can convince ourselves there's power in it, um, is asking about how it is that the university is actually building their buildings, um, how it is that they're taking up their responsibilities um, to be sustainable in those works. Um, and like, who's doing the work, right? Like, I was part of this, that the indigenous consultation about this new, Really, it's a parking structure, but they're calling it something much grander than that, right, at the University of Toronto. Um, and yeah, like, they were, not, they were not expecting the pushback that they got from those of us that they brought together for this consultation. Um, and the question I kept asking them, because they were talking about these different kinds of marble and stuff that they were going to use. I'm like, oh, that's great. I'm like, where are you sourcing it from? And, and how are you doing that? And what's then your you know, what kind of relationship are you planning to build with the places where you're getting that stone from? And they did not anticipate those questions. But those are the questions we all need to be asking is as, you know, we're building these beautiful buildings and um, doing these great things about even encouraging, you know, um, environmental design, it's still that how is it getting done and how does that impact indigenous peoples in particular, but also impacting the natural world um, on a grand scale, right? And just holding them accountable at every opportunity. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm really excited to hear what 
Professor Todd has to say. Oh, no, I'm nervous. <laughs> but I think building on what Professor Hill said, like the sourcing is so important. And I didn't understand the religious underpinnings of Western universities till I went to the University of Aberdeen, which was established in 1495. And it was a religious institution to train the firstborn sons of the wealthy elite in that area uh, to become you know, um, priests. And the old college on campus has this one of those bishop crowns, and it's very overtly religious. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's also, it, it, we have to source things. And we also have to think about why we're trying, at times, you know, trying to emulate the, U, the, the European or British, you know, university model that were initially very, very tied to the church. Um, and so that, that sourcing, and then also like how we're conceiving of what a learning space is, those are such crucial uh, conversations and the work that people like Professor Hill and other Indigenous leaders are doing across campuses to really hold institutions accountable is amazing. And spaces are being designed that are so much more expansive and also welcome in other displaced and dispossessed communities. So refugee communities, African diasporic communities, and just creating a much different learning space. And then I guess to your question about alternate media, I don't want to put my auntie on the spot, but she is in the in the audience online. <laughs> my auntie Loretta is my mentor, my inspiration, my, you know, you know, the first intellectual that I sort of think of when I think about, you know, my, my dad and my auntie are both really foundational in how I think about Métis worlds. And, and my auntie Loretta is this incredible Métis filmmaker who studied at Simon Fraser University and has gone on to sort of make film, you know, her own medium through her relationships, both to our community and our nation, but also other foundational important Indigenous artists and filmmakers and thinkers across the country. And so, you know, I really can't say that I do alternate media work without recognizing that I come from a family that does that already, <laughs> but that uh, also have shown me that you can take technology and media uh, and really make them our own within our own worlds, our own languages, our own stories, our own philosophies. And so the work she's doing with the Indigenous Matrix for Media at Emily Carr University and their amazing, you know, free trainings uh, for Indigenous people to learn how to create uh, augmented and virtual reality is just amazing. And there's so many amazing folks doing that. Uh, so I get to just, I get to walk in the footsteps of giants every day. Uh, and I get, I feel really thankful, but yeah, those are just some quick thoughts. Um, yes, uh, Professor Gunn. Thanks. Um, I um, noted in Vine's work the helpful classification for conditions under which from an indigenous set of perspectives lands become sacred or marked in this way. And you just made reference to the Kamloops grave recovery. Um, you know, when I've been to Wounded Knee, if you feel like that's sacred territory, this Kamloops area could become such. You also made reference to church burnings, but you didn't exactly link those. And the thing that strikes me now, this is information I've gotten, and you don't really get the whole background stuff that I'm hearing in the mainstream media. So maybe I'm misinformed and maybe you can set me straight here. But what I've heard is, what I've come to understand is, the allegations about the Kamloops grave sites um, have been allegations that they actually haven't been able to go and like disinter bodies or find concrete evidence yet, but that it's been promoted in the media and carried by the media in ways that completely obscured the fact that even the people who did the radar acknowledge that this could just be you know other kinds of things, not necessarily graves, it's not proof of graves yet. Um, however, in the wake of that and related kinds of outrage, which 
if it should be a sacred place because in fact Indian children were neglected and abused and even murdered and placed in secret ways in that territory. That sounds like conditions under which we might want to consider that sacred territory. Um, but without evidence yet, people have expressed that outrage and burnt churches, I'm told even Indian churches where Indian people worship. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, in the absence of the evidence yet, if unless it's come out in the past month since I looked into this more deeply, are there any Indian people, and especially Indian academics in Canada, who are standing up to say on behalf of Indian Christians that their churches shouldn't be burned from outrage on claims that have not been sourced with evidence yet? So to my knowledge, I don't know of anybody saying that specifically, Joe. Um, I do know of a number of community leaders who are encouraging their people to be compassionate um, to their neighbors. Uh, and like I'm talking about within communities, right? So these are, you know, to our Christian neighbors within our communities. Um, so there's definitely been that. Um, in our own community, uh, we had a, a rather historic church burned, um, I guess it was probably a year and a half ago. Um, what we're told, but it's, it's interesting because it's, um, it's not a church, like honestly the Mohawk Chapel is probably at the greatest risk because it's just down the street from mm -hmm. the mush hole, the Mohawk Institute. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they might have security there, to be honest with you, but I think they've had that there for a while because actually somebody tried to burn it down like 20 years ago um, because of the legacies, right? Because we've had those stories, like, you know, everybody like sort of hangs the, the TRC up as like this, you know, beacon of truth. Um, and it is, but it's not the first beacon that came forward with truths about residential schools, but it's the one that's gotten the most traction. So, you know, people really hold that up as if, oh, this is the first time we've heard about this. Ultimately, you know, for those of us um, from communities and those of us who work in Indigenous studies, we know that when a church gets burned, it, it might be said that it's in response to something like unmarked graves being discovered, but it's really about decades of feeling oppressed, right? And that becomes the target of a release of that oppression. Um, we know that, but the reality of course is that, and in some cases there are actually like material culture things that get lost in those expressions of, of outrage and grief, right? And yeah, navigating that is not simple. I don't I don't, maybe Zoe might know, but I don't think I've heard any like indigenous scholar in Canada who's talking about it in that sense of, we need to wait to have this conversation. Um, there are folks who are not ground, ground penetrating radar specialists who are now engaged a bit um, because I think it's probably happening at a lot of institutions. You're probably getting it on this side of the border as well. Folks who work in that technology reaching out to Native folks, asking, you know, do you want to be a part of my project? Uh, you know, and in some cases, they're being asked by communities to come in, and they're looking to have sort of somebody who can be a link in that process, um, but then also trying to help our colleagues understand that that's a difficult question, right? Um, you know, I, I, I'm betting that the majority of uh, indigenous scholars on both sides of the border are one or two generations removed from residential schools or boarding schools or 
a relative who is, right? Like it's not always, you know, your direct ancestor, but we're all related to survivors, right? Um, and so, yeah, like trying to help our non-Indigenous colleagues understand that this isn't just a simple opportunity that you're presenting to us. But then also I think most of us are trying to navigate these questions more, more quietly around these tensions that you're talking about in community, for sure. Um, yeah. Professor Hill, I want to take the chair's prerogative just for a minute to smuggle in part of your paper that you didn't get to that I was electrified oh. by, <laughs> which is your discussion of environment um, toward the end, just because I feel like it's such an important thing for our audience to, sh to hear your thoughts about. Um, in an earlier draft that you had um, kindly shared with us, um, uh, who are working on the panel, you, you wrote that indigenous studies and indigenous rights get the most traction in mainstream society around issues of the environment. Not surprisingly, it's also the area where I believe we see the greatest misappropriation of indigenous philosophies and ethics. Uh, later on, you speak about the co-opting of a conservationist ethic through commodification, resulting in the opposite effect to what is sought in terms of protecting the natural world and healing Mother Earth. You had some wonderfully detailed discussion about um, the North Ontario Ring of Fire extraction project for creation of lithium batteries to power electric vehicles so that the upper middle classes can theoretically reduce their carbon footprint and sleep better at night, um, which is a controversy I've been following. I'm thinking, uh, when I read it, I thought immediately of this room, yes, which was built to create an ex uh, a connection to the natural world. Uh, and in the process, cut down a tree that was planted at the founding of our school, a red oak, um, who had, a, it being HDS, had a two-hour funeral with every tradition you can imagine um, to say goodbye. And on that tree was a, a hand-lettered sign from one of our students, and it said, please don't kill me. I am a living being. I cannot run. So I just want to remember her as we think about this, um, this very, very... Uh, uh, contested, problematic um, uh, issue that you raise, the commodification of conservation ethics. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about it. Um, as you say, what can we take from God is Red as a means of combating this? I'll try. <laughs> um, I think ultimately it's about that um, requirement of ourselves to question what we're doing, how we're doing it, and at what cost, right? Because there is always a cost. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's real easy to fall into, like, yeah, this is a gorgeous room, you know, and, and to be asked, do you want a room like this? Oh, yes. Without then saying, oh, but wait, what's, what has to happen for a room like this to happen, right? Um, and so that encouraging folks to actually really think deeply about the choices that they're making and to try to actually unpack what honestly, the genealogies of those choices end up being, right? right? Like, genealogy is a really useful way of thinking about, like, what are the, all of these connections, right? And as a result, and in the end, yes, I'm, I'm sure it was very difficult um, to see that tree go, but then what are your responsibilities because of that decision? Right. You know, I'm hoping they planted 50 more red oaks. They planted her daughters, which couldn't, who couldn't grow before, because yeah. So there's okay. twelve acorns. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they'll continue to plant. <laughs> right. And not just here, right. right? But like all those other places where wood for building projects at Harvard are sourced. Right. Um, and then also trying to make sure that you know the waters 
and the lakes and, and all of those things around those places are protected and that there's the things are decisions are made to encourage those things to be able to thrive mm -hmm. right so that it isn't just like that tree being replaced but then thinking about how it is you can actually grow that opportunity mm -hmm. into making things better than it was when that tree stood right right um yeah and, and again i know that's kind of like lofty and no no i was um, could you say more about the ring of fire extraction project uh sure so um Probably, I think it, and Zoe likely knows more about this than I do, but I believe that it started heavily in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's billed as a development project, which is almost always the case in anything in Northern Canada. Um, I'm in Southern Canada too, right? But they've already developed the heck out of our territories. So yeah, the North is, is the development zone. Um, and it's always sort of... Um, promoted as opportunities for indigenous communities in those places. Uh, in the case of Ring of Fire, they're actually, the way they got it kind of brought back and they got communities to agree to it is they're gonna build year-round year roads. A lot of those communities are isolated and they're only accessible by road in the winter. Um, so they're like, oh, we're gonna build you a, like, a year-round road. And so a lot of folks are real interested in that because you know, just for lots of reasons, right? Um, and it's also like kind of sold to the mainstream as people aren't living in that particular area. Um, you know, we've already done similar things and we're going to like make sure that the people are well compensated and they're going to have jobs because, you know, native people don't have jobs. Um, so all of those things, right. And, and to be honest too, like, and I get it, like a lot of leadership in those communities are willing to agree to it because sure. they don't have jobs and because, you know, even though they're in their, you know, traditional territories, those territories aren't what they were 50 years ago even, right? Like, right. Um, and they're also dealing in many cases with compounding social pressures, mm -hmm. um, including a lot of issues around just, yeah, I mean, it's all the modernity stuff that you see not just in North America, what you see in lots of parts of the world, right? And those pressures that come with that. So yeah, the Ring of Fire, um, originally I, I wanna say it was other minerals that they were looking to mine there, but recently it shifted to, um, I don't think it's, I think it's like, um, it's lithium and there's a couple others. I don't think it's cobalt, because um, cobalt's another mineral, right? That's heavily used in a lot of these, um, like long lasting batteries mm -hmm. that are like the, the renewable stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, they actually were mining cobalt a century ago in Southern Northern Ontario. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I know for sure it's lithium. I just don't remember some of the other specifics, but uh, recently the provincial government in Ontario announced that um, they're signing on to support General Motors in their advanced um, expansion of electric vehicles. Um, there's, Parts, actually, I think maybe the Trudeau, the Trudeau government, which is, that's the federal government, um, has made some commitments around only electric vehicles being available, I think, by 2050. Um, they, they put times on it, mm -hmm. which, in theory, that's great, because they're talking about trying to reduce emissions, but then they're not thinking about the alternate right. damage, right, that comes about in order to facilitate that. You know, and shifting from that, but, like, all of us, and 
the lovely Zoom that I am very grateful for, but that comes at a cost too, right? In understanding the impacts, particularly on indigenous communities, because we bear the brunt of these things mm -hmm. in terms of like the mining of minerals that are used in computer right. building and that are used uh, in the infrastructure for the internet, right? Like, and yeah, at some point we could probably get to the point where we wouldn't do anything. Um, right. <laughs> but it's about understanding then, okay, what responsibilities do we inherit? Um, in order to try to reconcile the expenses that we're putting on the natural world in order to facilitate an easier lifestyle for us. We are at the end of our time. Um, we're going to, um, I'm gonna thank our, our panelists in just a moment, but just so that my words are heard because I've been given this message five times, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing it, no I won't. Uh, <laughs> we'll break now and we'll return at 3.30 to begin the final panel of the day. Tracy, I said it, I won't sing it, but I just wanna thank um, our wonderful uh, panelists, our thought-provoking panelists for their remarks and for all of you for your questions. Um, thanking Professor. Uh, Susan Hill and Professor Zoe Todd, um, bless you and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Sponsors, Harvard Divinity School, Harvard University Native American Program, Center for the Study of World Religions, the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.